Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. In this episode of Russian Roulette, um, I talk with Melinda Herring, who is editor of the Ukraine Alert blog at the Atlantic Council of the United States. Uh, we're going to talk about Ukraine's recent presidential elections, uh, the election of Volodymyr Zelensky as Ukraine's president, uh, and speculate on what that all might mean for Ukraine, for Russia, for the West, for the relations between them, for the Minsk ceasefire agreement, and many other things. Um, we also talk about uh, Ukrainian politics heading up to this fall's parliamentary elections. Uh, it's a lot to cover, but uh, it was a fun and hopefully interesting conversation. I uh, hope you'll enjoy it. Let's get started. Welcome back to Russian Roulette. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be back. So Ukraine had a presidential election last week. Um, we have a new president, um, perhaps somebody that even a couple of months ago, none of us saw coming. Uh, what happened? So I think the word to use is crushed. Volodymyr Zelensky, who is an inexperienced comedian, he's 41 years old, uh, J- uh, of Jewish origin from a small city called Kivari in southeast Ukraine, uh, won in the second round with 73% of the vote, and he crushed Petro Poroshenko, the incumbent. Yeah, 73% is an enormous amount. Yeah, and, and only a week ago, some of the election geeks I talked to said, uh, don't worry, the numbers are going to close. But he actually did better th- than what people were expecting. Uh, you know, landslide was a word that, that a lot of the newspapers used as well. So what explains the emergence of, of Zelensky and his success? I mean, again, this is a guy who, when we had you on the, the podcast before, wasn't even on any of our radars. Yeah, we didn't talk about him last time I was here. Mm-hmm. So something interesting happened. We knew that Ukrainians were really frustrated and pissed off because of their economic circumstances primarily, and because uh, Petro Poroshenko made a lot of promises about living in a new way. That was actually his slogan uh, five years ago. A- and he fought uh, almost all the anti-corruption uh, reforms tooth and nail, and people's bottom, lives, uh, bottom lines didn't improve. The war was an issue, but it wasn't the primary uh, issue. The primary issue was the economy. Uh, The Ukrainian economy is finally growing. It's growing at 3.25%, which doesn't sound bad. But when you take a bigger look, it it looks terrible. Ukraine has become the poorest country in Europe. It's poorer than Moldova now. Mm -hmm. Albania. Yeah, it's the poor. It's the poorest in Europe, uh, and it has low levels of happiness. If you believe in these surveys that measure happiness, right. if you look at the latest Gallup poll, it has the lowest trust in the world. So Ukrainians were in a really bad mood. And so they, this was, in a lot of ways, more a referendum on Poroshenko than it was a, an endorsement of Zelensky. That's per right. Se. That's right. People people were willing to vote for Chiboroshka, Jeff. I mean, that, that's how bad it was. Uh, you know, it, it's we're, a lot of us are sort of wondering uh, who else could have beat Poroshenko. And in a lot of the polling, anyone would have beat Poroshenko. Timoshenko probably would have beat Poroshenko. Uh, Except he, she ran against Poroshenko and didn't make it to the second round. Well, there was, a, there was a Zelensky in the room, though. So what's interesting, though, is if you go back and look at the polling, I've been corrected and told you did not look at the polling carefully enough. Zelensky was doing well uh, back in December. Uh, you know, he announced on the 31st on TV in a very splashy way, uh, and he he had a brilliant campaign. That's another thing that's worth talking about. So it wasn't a traditional campaign. He didn't go out and shake hands and kiss babies like we do in America. Uh, he didn't really, he, he um, 
didn't really talk to journalists either. He did almost everything online. I mean, he he's funny too, and he used humor to his advantage. He would wear a clown nose uh, and and make fun of people who called him a clown and a comedian. Uh, but he he spoke to people and he understood the mood far better than mm-hmm. Poroshenko or anyone else did. So to paraphrase something, people were asking about Russia. Oh maybe 20 years ago, almost. Ktotokoy uh, Gospodin Zelensky. Who is this guy? What do we know about him, not only as a comedian, but as a politician, as a political figure? What does he actually stand for? I think that's an open question. So as a human, I can tell you a little bit about him. He's 41 years old. He's married and has two children. He's a, a, a millionaire. Uh, a self-made man. Uh, he's been on One Plus One. It's a TV mm-hmm. station owned by Ihor Kolomoisky for seven years. Before that, he was on Furtash's channel. He's he's the showman. He's the producer. So he has a, a good reputation. I talked to people in media in Kiev last week. He has a good reputation as a manager. People really like him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's the leader of the of the most popular comedy group in Ukraine. But that hardly qualifies you for <laughs> executive office. But the 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 big question is, is what are his views? Why is he running? I still haven't got a straight answer on that. So mm-hmm. some people have told me that he, uh, you know, he played a TV on, 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 or he played a president on television. Right. And he looked around and said, you know what? I can do this better than the guy who's in <laughs> office. You know, and that that might be true. But we don't know if it was his idea or if his backers put him up to it. Mm-hmm. We don't know how deep the relationship is between Kolomoisky and Zelensky, the new president. So there are some links. Uh, his his show is on One Plus One, so mm-hmm. that's definitely a link. There's been bodyguards that have been guarding Zelensky that are uh, allegedly tied to Kolomoisky. He's, written, he's been in a car that was tied to Kolomoisky. Look, we don't know. And they've been at, you know, he's been asked about it, and he says he's his own man. Uh, the real test, though, we'll know as Zelensky names more and more people, uh, you know, who, if he's naming people who have links to Kolomoisky, that, that will be one sign. Another sign will be how he handles uh, pri- private bank. Private bank, yeah. yeah. How he handles the Ukrainian International Airlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kolomoisky is the owner, of course. I mean, what would that look like? What are some of the indicators that you'd be looking for in terms of his handling of those issues that would suggest that he's not beholden to Kolomoisky? Well, if he if he treats these issues independently, you know, uh, Ukrainian Airlines. It, it, I, I was just told that they're registering, uh, so they did really well. But then there's more competition, and in the in um, I think it was the fourth quarter that their numbers have dropped. Mm-hmm. So let let's see if they get some kind of preferential treatment. I mean, that, that's one thing to watch. But the the big thing to watch is the parliamentary list. Mm-hmm. So as we get closer to the October parliamentary elections, you know, it's election season. Right. You, it's still it's election, election season, season in Ukraine. Now, uh, everything is going crazy. And we'll talk about this in a minute, I'm sure. But uh, they're going to be putting together a parliamentary list. If Kolomoisky's people are high on that list, people are going to wonder, uh, you know, is how strong is that relationship? People are going to begin to suspect that, that the relationship is a lot stronger than what these guys are saying. Okay. In, in terms of substance, what are the things that Zelensky uh, was focusing on during the campaign? I mean, yes, living standards are not what they should be, but did he have anything that might be characterized as a as a program? Did he have real policy ideas for how he might address some of these problems? So uh, again, he's very superficial. He did not want to debate and he tried to get out of the debate. He eventually right. did debate. You know, a lot of people said that he was not going to do very well because Poroshenko is a skilled debater and knows every issue, uh, you know, and has been in politics for more than 20 years. Uh, we have some him, uh, we have some 
uh, suggestions of Zelensky's views. We don't know if these are actually his views, but let's let's take his views seriously and his platform seriously. So he campaigned on an anti-corruption platform. He has two very serious people uh, who are ministers in Poroshenko's administration, Ivaris Abramovicus and then uh, Alexander Doniluk, who is the uh, minister of finance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that sends a good signal that he's going to do things like privatization, land reform, uh, you know, all the things that people have been calling for for, for years and years. Uh, and that they're going to remove. He also talked about removing parliamentary immunity from MPs, which would be a fabulous a, step forward. Yeah, that would that would be huge. That'd be huge. Um, the issue, though, really is, oh, and his. We should talk about his foreign policy as well. He has a pro-Western orientation. He supports mm-hmm. NATO membership, EU membership. Uh, but the pro, he did say something a little weird about NATO. He said that he wants it to be up for. He personally supports it, but he wants it to be up for a referendum. Uh-huh. I think that was an attempt to just woo voters in the southeast. And I don't think he's actually going to be able to do that. I don't think he's going to be able to hold a referendum uh, on the issue. Well, that seems to be a long way off, given that there's very little prospect of NATO offering Ukraine membership during Zelensky's time in office. Yep, that's true. That's true. Um, what about the conflict and, and his approach to Russia? So that was another area where he was criticized. He he talked about uh, he talked about negotiating with with Putin directly, uh, and you know nationalists uh, didn't like that answer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know there was a lot of concern. People were smearing Zelensky and saying that he was Moscow's choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we see something weird happening. Uh, Putin won't congratulate Zelensky. Right. Yeah, and, and now Putin, um, the Kremlin has just also offered. They're going to offer passports to people in Donetsk and Luhansk. So they're already trying to test uh, mm-hmm. Zelensky. Uh, and there's also they also floated an idea of releasing the 24 soldiers. The sailors. Uh, yeah. The 24, uh, yeah, sailors from the Kerch Institute last November. So there, there's definitely going to be a lot of tests. Honestly, the thing that I'm scared about is that Zelensky still does not have any serious foreign policy thinkers in his uh, immediate circle. He probably has four circles around him, mm-hmm. but there are there are no people with any experience, any sort of foreign policy pros. It, it, you know, the, the, the economic people and... The anti-corruption people are all solid, uh, but I, I, I don't know why they haven't moved forward on this. Yeah, and I suppose that would be a big indicator, too, whether you know the people he brings into his foreign policy team not only are serious, but sort of what their views are in terms of Ukraine's relationship with Europe and how they propose to deal with the conflict. So allegedly, I, I'm just back from Kiev, and he allegedly has offered the Minister of Defense job to someone uh, that I know and trust and think very highly of, mm-hmm. um, who is pro-Western, has all the right views, who's an excellent manager, um, and, and someone who, who knows what he's doing. Uh, if he were to be named... I think that that name would give Washington and Brussels uh, a, a lot of confidence. So, I mean, I, I think for Russia, this is an interesting opportunity, but also a challenge because the, the Russian government likes the devil it knows rather than the devils it doesn't know. And in a lot of ways, Zelensky seems like the devil they don't know. Um, so on the one hand, he may be pragmatic. Uh, you know, He's not as personally invested in a lot of these issues as Poroshenko was. He may prove to be more flexible. On the other hand, he's a very different character, right? He's not part of the old oligarchic establishment that the Kremlin has been dealing with for the last 30 years. Um, so he's kind of a wild card. And I think it's going to be interesting to watch how Russia's approach to dealing with Zelensky evolves, not only how Zelensky's approach to dealing with Russia evolves. You know, I can see the fact that 
you know Poroshenko is is on the way out as an opportunity potentially to move the the pro- the process of looking for some kind of political resolution to the the conflict in the Donbass forward. On the other hand, because Zelensky is a neophyte, because his foreign and defense policy chops are untested, I think you can envision a scenario where the Kremlin decides this is an opportunity to to push things forward. Um, So there's a lot of uncertainty now. And I think those of us who kind of pay attention to and worry about Russia and and Russia's Russian relations with Ukraine, you know, are, are watching this one very closely and are at least concerned about what might happen over the next couple of months. Yeah. And I I think that Zelensky is an interesting figure, too. We know that millions of Russians watch the debates Mm -hmm. and they watch the campaign. And Zelensky said something really interesting on election night. He said, let the entire former Soviet Union look at us and see that anything is possible. Right. Which for good or ill, because, you know, the Kremlin narrative has been democracy is destabilizing. Uh, you may get unexpected results that may make things worse. Uh, it's it's unstable. Um, what we have is predictable. It's stable. You know what you're going to get. But we've been seeing a lot of comments within Russia. I mean, maybe these are just liberal commentators. You could argue that. But people are interested. Right. Uh, and the, if Zelensky can succeed in Ukraine, then Moscow is not going to be mixing martinis anymore, right? They're, they're going to start fearing. There's a meme going around yeah. right now uh, where Putin says to the leading comedian in Russia, don't you get any ideas? <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it, it's, it's silly. But, you know, if Zelensky, no, there's, there's something to it. If Zelensky can pull this off, right. uh, you, you know... Moscow is going to be concerned. No, absolutely. And I think that's why, you know, the argument in the West for a long time has been the best way to handle the conflict in Ukraine is to make sure that Ukraine succeeds politically, that Ukraine succeeds as a democratic experiment. Because if Ukraine can do it, it's an example uh, to Russia and to Russians, given the the close ties between the two countries. Absolutely. And precisely for that reason, you know, there's reason for the Kremlin to be concerned um, and reason for them to think that it's probably best if Zelensky fails. Jeff, one other piece on the Kremlin that's interesting is uh, some people in Washington expected a lot of interference in these elections. Yeah. And uh, they didn't find it. Uh, I think that we're probably going to see more interference in the parliamentary elections mm-hmm. in the fall. There's a lot more opportunity for monkey business. There's just right. a lot more seats, right? Sure. Uh, and par- it, so Ukraine also is a parliamentary presidential system, and the power is in parliament. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's one piece to watch. But uh, the, par- the parliamentary elections are now uh, on everyone's mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, the results of the parliamentary elections are more important than the presidential election. So even though we now have Zelensky and everyone's focused on the inexperienced comedian who tells, you know, crude jokes, um, the the focus really should be on the parliamentary elections. And how is Zelensky doing in terms of lining up parliamentary candidates who might support him, whether in a a formal party structure or not. So he does have a party. It's called Servant of the People. It's, mm-hmm. of course, brand new and untested. Right. Uh, we're in kind of a weird position right now. Uh, if you call anyone in Kiev, they'll say there's going to be early elections. And then you call someone else and they'll say, nope, there's not going to be early elections. So right now, there's a six-month period yeah. between the second round and the parliamentary elections. Uh, a- and everyone is – all hell is breaking loose, just just to put it really clearly. Uh, Narodny Front, which is uh, one of the, the parties – it's Arseniy Yatsenyuk's party – Mm-hmm. One of the coalition parties uh, is is breaking apart right now. Uh, the prime minister said he 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 he's he's starting his own party. There's rumors that Arsen Avakov, the interior minister, is going to be starting his own party, and that he wants to 
be prime minister. So right now, there's a lot of jockeying. Yeah. And, um, you know, everyone is is trying to figure out uh, how to run and how to make the 5% threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, and that includes presumably uh, the old party of regions, the, the pro-Russian forces. What are their prospects? They're, they should do pretty well in the parliamentary elections. They, they may. Uh, I, I saw some polling that says somewhere between 15 to 20 percent. Mm-hmm. Not only in the southeast. I mean, they're definitely going to make the threshold. They'll be in the next parliament. Well, I'm not trying to, to run away from this question, Jeff, but a lot of it depends on, on what happens in the RADA in the next six months. Sure. So in general, so we have a, a new president who's going to go into the RADA, and he can name five. Only He, he only gets five appointments, mm-hmm. and two out of the five require RADA confirmation. Right, for the, the, for the cabinet. Uh, two of them are ministerial appointments, and then three of them are not ministerial. The, the two ministerial are Minister of Foreign uh, Affairs and Minister of Defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, what will likely happen? is Zelensky will name them and then Rada will refuse to to, uh, to 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 pass it. I mean that that's something they could do. The Rada the Rada is going to fight him tooth and nail. There, there's going to be they don't want him to have any legislative wins in this next six six uh, month mm-hmm. period because none of his people are currently in the Rada. No. So he one thing that's interesting is some people have started defecting to uh, to Zelensky in the Rada. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And we may see a few more defections. But, you know, a lot of the parties that are in the RADA right now, so Samopomich is also self-destructing. That's the party from Lviv right. uh, called Self-Reliance. In 2014, they did unexpectedly well, they, and uh, they took 25 seats. Last week, they lost five MPs. So they're just, they're self-destructing. I don't think they're going to make the threshold. Uh, up, uh, you know, the party, old party of regions will make the threshold. Uh Timoshenko's party will make the threshold. I don't know uh, enough about what's going on within Narodny Front. Um, you know, if Avaka runs, he'll probably make the threshold. I don't know if Groisman will on his own, but I don't. I, I doubt that he'll be running on his own. I, I've been doing a lot of reporting on the sort of Euromaidan uh, yeah. vote, and that's about fifteen percent of the country. And I, I have a little graph. This is like the strongly pro-European, Western-oriented, and group. anti-corruption. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's another piece of it. So you know, these are the Mustafa Naims right. and the Sergei Leshchenkos and the Hannah Hopkos that we all know and have mm-hmm. followed. So if you can imagine about ten circles on a piece of paper. There's, there's 10. You have a piece of paper, I have a piece of paper in, front in front of me of and with lots of crosses through it. Uh, so there, there's uh, 10 different groups, movements, people who are negotiating right now and trying to, to uh, you know, form some kind of united party. But frankly, we are where we were a year ago. Yeah. These people are just talking and drinking a lot of coffee and arguing. Uh, and there hasn't been much unification. And and. In your estimation, how much of this coffee drinking and arguing is the result of simply competing personal ambitions and how much of it really is about ideas and policy? I'd say very little of it is about ideas and policy, and it's almost all about personality. Uh, Ukraine is a politically immature system. Mm-hmm. and You many- have political parties that are the vehicles for individual leaders rather than for sort of mass ideological movements. Ukraine does not have political parties in the Western sense. You could argue that Timoshenko's party is a political party, uh, that it has has roots and ideology, uh, but that's about the only one. Uh, political parties come and go. They're like you said, they're named after people, uh, and and they don't have. A, 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 one thing that's really interesting is, um, you know, in the United States, people are loyal to a political party in general, uh, and, and that doesn't really change over their lifetime. In in Ukraine, people people come and go, and they don't have any loyalty, right, at, at all. Um, I, I would say, though, of this Euromaidan vote, there's there's two groups that I'm watching. Uh, one group is. 
um, a, a group that's being led by Ivanka klimpush Cincinnati, who's in government now, Hannah Hopko, who's chairwoman of the Foreign Affairs Committee. And then there's a couple of MPs from Narodny Front that are behind it, a former education minister, uh, Sergei Kvit. And their big thing is they want Ukraine to pursue a pro-NATO, pro-European direction. Now, there's rumors that they're, they may be merging with another smaller party that has uh, good links in the South and the East, which would mm-hmm. give them a boost. Uh, there's also rumors that, that uh, Slava Vakarchuk, the rock the star, rock singer, who, who was supposed to run time. for election, you know, yeah. r- run for the presidency, may probably bless kicking this. Himself now. Um, I don't think he's very happy with himself right <laughs> now. So that's another piece of, of why uh, Zelensky, you know, did so well. We knew that Ukrainians wanted new faces. Uh, Ukrainians wanted someone uh, who who was new, who wasn't tainted by the old system and had wide appeal. And Vakarchuk fit that bill and Zelensky fit that bill. Right. And Zelensky was the one who decided to dive in. And so that segment of the population coalesced around him rather that's, than that's around right. Vakarchuk. So, well, it would have coalesced around Vakarchuk. Vakarchuk decided not to run. Yeah. And he doesn't have the stomach for it. I mean, he decided officially he said the timing wasn't right. But I, I, I think he didn't want – so he's a rock star and he's used to being adored. Right. And when you're president of Ukraine, it's a really nasty business and they're not even going to adore you for a day. <laughs> yeah. Well, what was it Abraham Lincoln said, right? You can please some of the people all the time and all the people some of the time, but you can't please all the people all the time. Yeah, I think it would have been – you know, it would have been a terrible shock to a system. The other party that I'm watching is called People Matter. Okay. And it's made up of three different groups. One is a group of entrepreneurs uh, that have been practicing at the city council, led by Sergei Gusovsky, an entrepreneur. And then uh, another part of that is uh, Institute of the Future, and it's a think tank. So they have a lot of expertise. And then there's a, a third layer as well. Uh, and these guys have been organizing around the country for the last three months. They've been in Kharkiv, mm-hmm. Odessa, uh, Lviv, and, and Dnipro. Uh, and so they just hired a campaign uh, person. So they're they're building regional legs. Uh, there's a possibility that People Matter will merge with uh, Mustafa Naim's group. He's got another group. Mm-hmm. But Mustafa's group is, is very small and doesn't seem to be very well organized. So I don't know how all the pieces are, are going to come yeah. together. Slava Vakarchuk also is talking about uh, announcing a political party uh, in the next, I'd say, week, week and mm-hmm. a half. Mm-hmm. So obviously predicting what's going to happen in Ukraine is a, a dangerous game. Again, nobody saw Zelensky coming, but six months out, what's your prediction for the parliamentary election? Messy, fragmented, and at least five parties. Okay. Um, let's come back to Zelensky for a minute because, you know, at the beginning you talked a little bit about him and, and who he was. And I'm curious if you have thoughts about what the selection of somebody like Zelensky says about Ukraine. So one... He's a Russian speaker. Um, you know, he's not enamored of a very kind of exclusive vision of Ukrainian nationalism that's overtly anti-Russian. Um, secondly, he's of Jewish heritage, although he's, you know, like a lot of post-Soviet Jews, seems to be not observant. Um, what is that or is there any sort of larger significance to that? I mean, is it just about his personality and who he is, or do these aspects of, of how he identifies have larger meaning also? So there's one other thing that I see 
that, that you didn't mention in your list. And Sergei Leshenko talks about Ukrainians have a pathology to look for the white horse, to mm-hmm. look for the, the right. knight who's going to save them. And they've done this over and over again if right. you look at modern Ukrainian history. Right. Only one Ukrainian president's ever been reelected. That's right. That's right. Uh, but they thought Yushchenko was going to be Jesus Christ. And right. it turned out, you know, he was just a wimp. Uh, and, you know, the, they, they keep waiting. And I saw this last year. And, and Jeff, I chased so many people around trying to figure out how all these parties were going to come together and they were going to find, you know, a righteous anti-corruption warrior who would mm-hmm. slay the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, Vakarchuk decided he didn't want to be that warrior. But uh, the, the problem is that, that there's a culture of very immature political leadership. And a lot of the politicians, I'm putting politicians in air quotes, uh, are not really politicians. You know, after the Euromaidan, people, uh, to their great credit, said, we need to take more responsibility. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're not a politician. I'm not a politician, but I'm t- I'm sick and tired of these guys and I'm go- I'm going to jump in. Yeah. Uh, but they're not real politicians. Right. Well, and this sort of gets back to what you're saying before about the political immaturity of the party system. But I think that it goes beyond the political parties in the sense that, you know, as you said, people are looking for a savior uh, from sort of outside the system. Um, And I think what we've seen in more, quote unquote, mature democracies is that it doesn't really work that way. Real change has to come from the bottom up. And that means more civic engagement. That means being involved in politics and local affairs, not just on election day, but on a constant basis. Absolutely. And we have seen that in Ukraine, you know, and there is activism at the local level. uh, And a lot of the civil society organizations outside of Kiev don't get any play here in the West. Right. But they're extremely active. The anti-corruption organization in Kharkiv is outstanding. Mm-hmm. There's another one in Odessa that's outstanding. Yeah. There's really- that's one of the things about Ukraine that I find really sort of encouraging for the future is that compared to a lot of other countries in the former Soviet Union, it really does have this dynamic civil society. So I was just told that my next trip needs to be to Mariupol. Okay. And, and I was told that uh, civil society is developing in ways that are unthinkable, that people are throwing off, uh, you know, they're, they're throwing off the old mentality and, and uh, coal miners are starting to organize and civil and business associations mm-hmm. are starting to form in Mariupol. So I'm really looking forward to going there. But to get back to your question about Zelensky being a Russian speaker uh, and what does that say about Ukraine? I think it's I think it's really interesting. So uh, if you if you look at Poroshenko's slogan this time, it was Army, faith, and language, yeah. and he thought that that would appeal to people. Um, you know, it, it was a it was a pretty nationalistic slogan. The first round, it appealed to people in Lviv. So in the first round, that's right. He he took uh, Ternopil and Lviv Oblast, and then the diaspora vote. Mm-hmm. So so that's the very far western part of Ukraine. That's right. And the diaspora. That's right. So so you know, it, it does work in certain sectors, but I, I think that Zelensky Zelensky was right to calculate and say that that uh, you know he's pro Ukrainian. Uh, he says that Russia Russia is at fault for what. What's going on in the Donbass? He, he, he's, you know, he's he's not wishy-washy about that at all. Um, you know, and so a lot of um, Ukrainian nationalists looked at Zelensky's uh, show, Servant of the People, and his uh, cartoon sketches and said that he belittles Ukrainian language and Ukrainian culture. Now, it's true that Zelensky doesn't speak very good Ukrainian, mm-hmm. um, and he's working on it. Yeah, although Poroshenko didn't speak good Ukrainian either, right? No one really speaks good Ukrainian. <laughs> uh, you know, among the elite, they, they, they pretty much learn it. Timoshenko has learned it. Uh, Poroshenko, you know, speaks it very well now. Mm-hmm. Um, Zelensky, so uh, Zelensky is learning it. His wife just gave an interview to the BBC U- Ukraine service that was really interesting. And she said, look, um, we want to speak Ukrainian, but we're native Russian speakers. And frankly, we have a hard time finding the correct word quickly. And she mm-hmm. said, let me be honest with you. 
Zelensky, my husband, is a really fast talker and he can't <laughs> find the right word quickly. So, you know, we go back to yeah. Russian. She's like, it's not that we're looking down on Ukrainian language or culture. Mm-hmm. It's just that this is our, our native language. And we right. understand that we have to speak this, you know, in, in state yeah. functions. And, and if you grew up in, and if you grew up in Soviet Ukraine, the chances are that was going to be the language that you learned. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, and he's from he's from a, uh, a uh, an intellectual Jewish family uh, in, in the southeast. They're they're Russian speakers. Right. Uh, you know, so it, it's interesting. But he he unified the country in a way that I don't think people expected. So, you know, this old divide that you look at any book on Ukraine where it says that the East is pro-Russian and Russian speaking uh, against NATO, against the European Union. And the West is Ukrainian speaking and, and pro pro-Western in its orientation. That, that divide's no longer accurate. Yeah. Well, if you look at the electoral maps of previous Ukrainian presidential elections, there is a very strong east-west divide. Um, you know, in in 2004, in 2010, um, even more recently, th- there's been a very clear split and the, you know, quote-unquote pro-Russian candidate, even if that's not really what they were, always did better in the east. And the more kind of overtly Ukrainophile, pro-European candidate did better in the West. And what's interesting about this election is, you know, sort of leaving aside Lviv, which has its own sort of unique history and identity, you didn't have that divide, or at least nowhere near as as stark as in previous elections. Absolutely. The Maidan changed everything. You know, it it really mixed things up. Uh, And a majority of Ukrainians support NATO membership and EU membership. So, you know, it's it's a different ballgame. Yeah. Well, support NATO and EU membership, but also don't kind of support a a narrow ethno-nationalist anti-Russian version of what it means to be Ukrainian. Yeah, they, they, they know that Ukraine is not Russia. But, you know, it, it's really an open question. Well, what is what modern is Ukraine? Ukraine? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that's going to be fascinating to follow as, as Zelensky uh, gets his sea legs. Uh, you know, the... This is maybe a superficial example, but Mrs. Poroshenko um, really made a point out of wearing Ukrainian designers. And you would see her in these beautiful embroidered outfits. And that was one of her ways of saying, like, you know, um, look at the fabulous things we're doing. Yeah. And the BBC just asked uh, Mrs. Zelensky, her name's Elena, uh, are you going to be wearing Ukrainian designers and, you know, all these mm-hmm. Vishivankas? And she said, you know, that's not really my style. But, like, I- of course I'll wear Ukrainian designers. I'm, I'm proud to be Ukrainian. But it's it's going to be interesting to see how the Southeast changes and yeah. And how they fit into this this bigger picture of, of modern Ukraine. Right. Well, and of course, certain parts of the southeast are not under Ukrainian government control at this point. And probably the places that would be most hostile to or most, you know, Russian oriented are effectively under Russian control right now. So in a way, that element has been, at least for now, kind of taken out of Ukrainian political fabric. Yeah. Yeah. I think some of the cities to watch, though, are Dnipro, mm-hmm. uh, Mariupol, Kharkiv. Kharkiv. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we're in Washington, so I always like to ask people, well, what should the U.S. do about this? So we have uh, kind of the six-month transition period before the parliamentary elections. Um, we have President Zelensky. Um, we have an ongoing conflict in the east. Um, We still have the occupation of Crimea. Uh, What should the U.S. be doing right now? The U.S. should 
reach out to Zelensky's transition team and offer its assistance. Uh, I believe Trump and Zelensky have already talked, and uh, the U.S. should invite Zelensky to come to the United States. Uh, the diaspora community should engage with Zelensky as well, which honestly when, when is— it, When is the inauguration, by the way? Uh, it is—I think that we're still waiting for the date, mm-hmm. but it, it's it's in May. Okay. Uh the diaspora community should engage with Zelensky, and that's going to be a bit of a problem mm-hmm. because they they uh, gave a, f- a very, very enthusiastic uh, endorsement of Poroshenko. Right. So that, that's going to be uh, a relationship that needs to be repaired as well. And then during that interregnum or during the period leading up to the parliamentary elections, what are the things that we should be watching for? So the next six months in parliament are going to be nasty and there's going to be a lot of fighting. Some of the guys who are in parliament now are not going to be reelected. So there's a real concern in Kiev that the anti-corruption reforms that were put into place will be rolled back. Mm -hmm. So I would say specifically leave the National Anti-Corruption Bureau alone and the head of NABU, leave him alone. Uh, You know, the West needs to be pushing really hard uh, for Ukraine to finally put the anti-corruption court into place. Mm -hmm. Some judges have been uh, named, which is fabulous. And this is something that Poroshenko was kind of slow rolling. Absolutely. He slow rolled it for for about two years. There's some other things that the the RADA really needs to focus on. But I think that the West needs to just be watching closely. Uh, There's a possibility that the RADA could adopt uh, an an electoral code that's in the second reading now, which would be, you know, a very positive thing. There's a number of things the could do if, if it wanted to get the economy growing and, and you know and, and and really focus on the hard stuff it's not going to do that though I mean it's going to be a period of, of, of fighting and, and one that requires a lot of scrutiny mm-hmm Jeff, I want to say one thing about uh, President Poroshenko. He did something really remarkable after he lost. So he he was crushed, right? It yeah. was 73 to 25. And the next day, he uh, he was a very gracious loser, uh, and he gave a uh, he, he went outside of Bankova of the presidential mm-hmm. uh, White House, and they had a little rally for him, and they said thank you for your service, and it, it was very very gracious. Even mm-hmm. if you don't like Poroshenko, right. uh, you know, and, and criticize his policies, you know, he's he's stepping down in a, a very sort of new way, and mm-hmm. I think it speaks really highly of him. And you know, I think history is going to look and back of Ukraine. on him. In of Ukraine, I think history is going to look back on him with with more sympathy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's too early to say that he's done. Yeah. So he definitely will be competing. Uh, it, his his party will be competing in, in the parliamentary elections. Uh, and he is, you know, he is he's a tough guy. So, uh, you know, I don't know how he's going to reinvent himself. I think he learned some things from mm-hmm. this election. He said that he should have gotten rid of his uh, business partners and not had them in high <laughs> positions. Duh. You know, that was kind of obvious. He also w- is uh, a very canned and artif- he seems artificial and he right. can really be belittling. So on the campaign trail, uh, a guy walked up to him and said, what are you going to do to fight corruption? And, the, and Poroshenko started screaming at him and said, you are an unbeliever. Go light a candle. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, just like a totally tone deaf response. So I think he might need to go back to like political school 101. Mm-hmm. Maybe he should get a, a comedy show on TV to, to work on his delivery. I think it would fall flat, Jeff. <laughs> but I, I think it's it's too too soon to, to write him off. He's he's not dead. He will be coming back in, in some fashion. Okay. Um, yeah. I, and I think it, it's worth pointing out that Ukraine has had a number of electoral transitions over its history as an independent country. Um, again, only one time have they reelected the president, but when incumbents in Ukraine have lost, 
they've left. And, you know, we had, of course, the the Maidan and, and Yanukovych being driven out. But, you know, Kravchuk, Kuchma, Yushchenko, when they lost, they left office. Yep. Yep. And I think that's a, a very positive sign. And it's something that Poroshenko's behavior in the aftermath of his defeat only uh, strengthens and reinforces that norm. And that's that's a good thing. Absolutely. And and I, I, I talked a lot about political immaturity, mm-hmm. but then there are you know signs of some mm-hmm. uh, political maturity as well. Yeah. OK, great. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll keep paying attention to this. Uh, Ukraine is going to be a fascinating story to watch over the next few months. Okay, that is it for our show today. Uh, You can find a link to Melinda's bio in the show notes. And of course, uh, if you haven't done so already, you should subscribe to Russian Roulette on iTunes, where you can also leave us a rating or a review. And if you don't use iTunes, you can check us out and also subscribe on either Google Play or SoundCloud. Uh, Enjoy and keep spreading the word. Tell your friends. And also, uh, this is your biweekly reminder to send us mailbag questions. Uh, You can email them to rep at csis.org and put the words Russian roulette in the subject line. We look forward to hearing from you, and we'll do another mailbag segment here soon. You can follow us on Twitter uh, at CSIS Russia, and you can follow me at Dr. J. Mankoff. And of course, finally, uh, last but not least, a uh, big thanks to everyone who works so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks. That includes our producer, research associate, and program manager, Cyrus Newland, and the entire CSIS external relations and iLab teams. Thanks to them, and thank you for listening. Until next time. <laughs>